listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. This is week number three through a, a series in the books of First and Second Kings. Today we're going to pick it up in First uh, Kings 18. Uh, let me set some context for you really quickly before we begin. Essentially what's going to happen here in this story is Elijah is going to call the people of Israel to make a decision. It's going to call them to make a decision. Now, most of you know that decision-making is oftentimes much easier said than done. Some choices are a little bit easier and a little more obvious, things like uh, Star Trek or Star Wars. That one's obvious. It's Star Wars, right? Ohio State, Michigan. That one's easy. But uh, some decisions are a little bit more difficult to come to some measure of consensus on. Uh, Anybody with a significant other uh, here can amen me on this one. Elise and I, my wife and I, we are in this perpetual fight uh, for where to go to eat. Anybody relate to that? Like, no, no, uh, Santos and Hannah are back here. They're engaged too. Uh, If you have, I mean, maybe this isn't true just for uh, significant others. Maybe this is true among siblings or whatever, but Elise and I can never agree on where to eat. And so I'm like on a Piata kick and I think I'm in the overwhelming minority there. Anybody else like Piata? No? I love Piata. And uh, so I've been telling Elise, like, Elise, let's go to Piata. And she's like, nah, I don't want Piata. I'm like, okay, well, where do you want to go? She's like, I don't know. And I'm like, girl, you're killing me. You can't strike down my submission if you're not going to bring one of your own. Always we end up at Chick-fil-A, God's favorite sandwich, Chick-fil-A. Closed on Sundays, which is how many of you have ever driven to the Chick-fil-A on a Sunday only to have that sinking feeling of like, dang, it's Sunday. They're not slinging these chicken sandwiches today. But we, always, the, we just moved to Gahanna, the, the Chick-fil-A up the road from us. They know our order, and they know us by our first name. They say, my pleasure, every single time. And that tickles me to death, y'all. I just love it. I just love, it is your pleasure, isn't it? Sure is. Uh, but Elijah, in the story today, he's going to call the people of Israel to make a much more consequential decision. The decision he's calling the people of Israel to, and, and, and by proxy, uh, you and I tonight, he's, he's calling them to follow God wholeheartedly. So um, I was going to read this entire text to you, but it's actually a pretty lengthy passage of scripture. We're going we're gonna to journey our way from verse 20 down to verse 40. And rather than reading it all in one big chunk on the front end, we're actually just going to walk this text tonight. And I'm going to try my best to pull out a, a few truths that are simple truths, but hope, hopefully a blessing to you guys. So um, let's pick it up in verse 16. Elijah uh, Backtracking a bit, Elijah was the prophet of God, and Elijah in this story is finally going to come face to face. He's going to have a face to face confrontation with uh, King Ahab. Ahab was the evil king of Israel. Uh, He wanted Elijah dead because three and a half years prior to this encounter, Elijah had pronounced a drought over Israel. Like I said, Elijah was the prophet of God. Prophets were kind of like God's retweets. They would take the word of the Lord and proclaim it to the people. And so Elijah had said, because of your sin and rebellion, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. So naturally, Ahab wanted Elijah dead because he was blaming uh, Elijah for the drought. In, in this three and a half year span, we talked in, uh, in week one of this sermon series how Elijah had spent time by the brook Cherith. That word Cherith means to cut down. And what God was trying to teach Elijah by the brook Cherith is what it means to be wholly dependent upon God. God was purging from Elijah this sense of self-sufficiency and teaching him to trust wholeheartedly in God. And then we said uh, two weeks ago that Elijah spent some time in Zarephath with a widow. And today, like I said, he's going to encounter Ahab and 
In this confrontation, Elijah calls out Israel for the lack of fidelity and their lack of faithfulness to the one true God, Yahweh. Y'all still with me? We're just getting started. Let's pick it up in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? I just love that phrase for some reason. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Elijah says in verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. This was Elijah's not so subtle way of calling out Ahab's wife, Jezebel. If Elijah was the brawn behind this operation, Jezebel was certainly the brains. Jezebel was the mastermind behind the slaughtering of all of the prophets of God. And she's the one who instituted in Israel the worship of the false gods of Baal and Asherah. And in a way, Elijah is saying, don't blame me. It's you and your girl's fault. And and because of your sin, you have brought this drought and calamity on Israel because you've forsaken the Lord and have followed the Baals or or these false and phony and, and lifeless wannabe gods, if you will. So Elijah says in verse 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah says, round up all your wannabe prophets, all 850 of them, and meet me on Mount Carmel. Uh, In a way, Elijah is sort of stacking the deck against himself. He's just one lone prophet of God, and he calls uh, Ahab to, to gather together the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. The reason why he's doing this is because when Yahweh ultimately prevails in just a few verses, he doesn't want there to to be any doubt about who the one true God is. And uh, he also wants there to be an audience for this beatdown. So he says, I want you to gather all of the people of Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. He says in verse 21, here is the, uh, the crux of my message tonight. Here's the question that Elijah posits to the people of Israel. And it's one that I think we should contend with tonight. He says this, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. See, the issue was the people of Israel had wavered back and forth between allegiance and worship of the one true God of Israel and and allegiance and worship of the false gods of Baal. And Elijah says, we need to cut out this this half-hearted discipleship and you need to go all in with whatever God it is that you're serving. The people of Israel, for, for them, worship wasn't necessarily a matter of allegiance. It was more a matter of convenience. They were, they were cool with worshiping the God of Israel so long as he was answering their prayers. As long as he was answering their prayers, they were good with God. He, they were good with God so long as his commands weren't too difficult and didn't rub up against their own sensibilities or, or didn't, didn't confront the cultural consensus. But the, but the moment that, that God's commands got hard, They would cease from worshiping the one true God and they would worship the gods of Baal, the gods of indulgence, the gods of of permission, the gods who who made uh, false promises of, of satisfaction and protection. And it's no different for you and I in our day. Here's what I mean. 
Think about the unmistakable zeal of a new Christian. You might even want to imagine yourself when you first got saved. New Christians, they are so full of passion. They, they have such uh, an unquenchable desire to grow. You know, they, they bring their Bibles everywhere. They are just loving God and, and, and they're loving life because they don't know any better. But after following Jesus for a little while, uh, they begin to, to become confronted with some of his commands and the ways that he calls us to live. For example, uh, God's command that, that sex be secure within a marriage covenant. And, and he also says that you and I should only have sex with one person for the rest of our lives, which is crazy. And then once these commands set in, they, they may start thinking to themselves, now nah, that, that, that can't be right. Like, God, are you, are you serious? Like, are, are you serious? And so uh, they forsake God and, and they begin to follow the God of, of sexual uh, freedom, the God of permissiveness, and, and the God of indulgence. They, they may resemble the God of the Bible, but they're fundamentally different in this sense. The, these false gods are, are writing you checks that you cannot cash. And in the memo line, on these checks are written the promises of, of freedom and satisfaction and identity. Listen to me, VC20. We think that freedom is the ability to choose whatever we want. But y'all, that's not freedom. That's bondage. Because eventually you become enslaved to every impulse and the things that you start running to thinking that they're going to give you life will ultimately leave you empty. And Elijah, he calls the people of Israel to, to the valley of decision in a way. He says enough of this half-hearted commitment to God. There's only two ways to follow God, all the way or not at all. Back in the day, VC20, uh, we used to be called Joshua House. Anybody, any Joshua Housers here? A few of y'all. Uh, I, I joke and say that, that VC20 is the artist formerly known as Joshua House. We used to be called Joshua House, and a lot of people were kind of confused by that name. What do you mean, Joshua House? That, that name is actually taken from Joshua chapter 24, when the, where the people of Israel had began again following the pagan gods of the Amorites. And Joshua says to them, this is a very famous verse, he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, as for me and my house, Joshua House, we will serve the Lord. Like, like Joshua, Elijah is saying, make a decision. Make up your mind. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But the text alarmingly says that the people remain silent. Verse 22, let's keep it moving. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. What's interesting here is that Elijah actually isn't the only prophet of the Lord left. Just a few verses earlier, we read that, that Obadiah has hidden a hundred of God's prophets in, in caves from Jezebel's army because she was out to slaughter them all. But a cave is no place for a prophet. In effect, Elijah is saying, I'm the only prophet left with the courage to call you out for your sin and your rebellion. So answer this question with me. What good is a prophet who does not prophesy? What good is a Christian in a cave? What good is a Christian in hiding? What good is a Christian who isn't actually and earnestly following after Jesus? These prophets had calculated the risk and decided that it was too great. And out of fear for their lives, they decided to hide. But fidelity to Jesus demands that you and I take a stand. It demands that we have conviction in a culture of compromise. It means standing for Jesus in the face of pluralism. It means standing for truth in the face of relativism. It means, it means uh, loving your neighbor and reading your Bible and, and praying. And to do any of these things in the name of Jesus will, in fact, cost you something. It may cost you some of your reputation. It may cost you some relationships. If you're doing it right, it will certainly cost you some money because where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. 
There is a cost to having conviction. Now, of course, this conviction shouldn't be lacking in love and grace and respect. And of course, we can't just be empty rhetoric. We must also live out what we believe and what we say. It isn't befitting, for example, for the church to rail against homosexuality while our bedmates remain the sins of fornication and adultery. It's not a good look for the church of Christ to espouse the virtues of generosity. All the while, we're caught up in the sins of materialism and greed. We can't just talk about it. We got to be about it. When we see Jesus face to face, he He will not say to us, well said. He will say to us, well done. We got to live this thing out, but we must have conviction. We must be convicted in a culture of compromise. I love the way uh, Cyprian of Carthage, he's an early church father. He said this, he said, we do not speak great things, but we live them. What if we became a community, VC20, that lived the things of God, that strove for holiness, that loved our neighbor? We must be convicted. It reminds me of the song from Hamilton. Maybe you can help me finish the lyrics. Any Hamilton fans out there? Yeah, I was late to the Hamilton game, but I love it. It says, uh, Burr, the revolution is imminent. What will you stall for? If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? If we stand for nothing, we're tempted to fall for anything. Don't get caught hiding in a cave. Don't uh, hide your light under a bushel. Jesus says that we should let our light shine before others so that they may see our lives so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's get to Elijah's actual challenge in verse 23. He says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood and do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call the name, on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then the people said, what you say is good. You see, there were no atheists in Near Eastern culture. Everybody believed in a God. And so this made good sense. The question for them wasn't, is God real? The question was, which God is real enough to respond? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt him. There's real humor here. He says, shout louder. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. The actual little rendering of that phrase busy is perhaps he's in the bathroom, right? Maybe, maybe he's indisposed. Maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. How many of you are grateful that we don't serve a God that requires our blood to flow? We serve a God whose blood flowed for us so that our sins could be washed away and we can be brought into right relationship with him. If y'all were a shouting church, that was your chance to amen me, Jeremy. That's, that's good news, y'all. It's good news. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. After the prophets of Baal failed to get the attention of their God, the first thing Elijah does is he repairs the altar of the Lord. The altar in the Old Testament was a place of remembrance. It was a place of worship and encounter. It was a place where people would go to worship and experience the living God. It's very possible that this altar in particular had gone into disrepair because the people of Israel had ceased from rendering worship to the one true God and were, and were mindlessly giving over their worship to the lifeless gods of Baal. They had 
neglected their God. And so to Elijah, this contest was, so much, was about so much more than whose God is greater. To Elijah, the heart of this contest was which God is more worthy, which God deserves our worship. For Elijah, this contest was about reorienting the people's hearts back to God. Now, I don't intend to stretch this story further than it should go, but I do think this is illustrative of a very important question that you and I must ask ourselves tonight, and it's this. What is the condition of your altar? What is the condition of your altar? The altar is a place of pure and simple devotion to Jesus, not religiosity. I'm not asking you, are you showing up to church on the lawn and downloading the VC20 podcast? I'm asking you are, you, are you nurturing your personal relationship with Jesus? That phrase, personal relationship, it's, it's one we hear often and it's ringing a bit hollow, but, but a personal relationship is, is the key to intimacy. Are you encountering God in your morning and in your evening and in your coming and in your going? What is the condition of your altar? Are you prayerful? Are you seeking God in the truth of his word? Are you worshiping? Are you, are you throwing on some worship music in the car and just letting the presence of the Lord wash over you? Are you coming to church online? Yes, even church online with a heart full of faith and expectation. Are we just resigning ourselves to the fact that we all have Zoom fatigue and so we're gonna give up on our faith, perhaps when it matters most? What is the condition of your altar? Are you willing to sacrifice your wants, your dreams, your ambitions, your everything, if it meant for you the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? I love what uh, David said in the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 43. He says, then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my exceeding great joy. What's the condition of our altar, VC20? Verse 32, with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it. If y'all are still with me tonight, give me a good amen. amen. Dug, dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two somethings of seed. I don't know what that word is. He, uh, he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed this bold, faith-filled prayer. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I, your servant, have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and, they are, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then climactically, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. This is an epic display of the power of God and its faithfulness to respond to the prayers of his people. Elijah arranges the wood, he cuts the bull into pieces, he douses the whole thing in water, and then he prays that bold but simple prayer, Lord, let it be known that you are God. And God answers by fire. He consumes the sacrifice and the hearts of the people are returned to the Lord. There's so much to say here. There's so much in this text about God's power, about his authority, about his exclusivity. There is no God like our God. These people were probably asking of themselves a ton of very, very good questions. Why didn't Baal respond? Why have we been wasting our worship on this false God? Did y'all see that giant fireball come out of heaven? All very, very good questions. But here's the question I wanna ask. Where did they get the water? They're in the middle of a three and a half year drought. 
right? All of the brooks and rivers are literally drying up. Some commentators wonder if they would have carried the water from the nearby Mediterranean Sea, but that would have been upwards of a six-hour walk to Mount Carmel. What's more likely is that this water was all these people had left. They're probably pulling this water from their reserves, knowing that if God doesn't show up, they're done for. And in one courageous act of faith, they poured it out on the altar, trusting that God was going to show up. And this is the true test of following God. It's giving everything you have and holding nothing back. Listen to me, VC20. I say this delicately, but as boldly as I can. God isn't interested in your half-hearted discipleship, nor mine. He doesn't call us to love him with half our heart, some of our soul, a portion of our mind, and a little of our strength. He wants our complete devotion. God demands, scripture describes him as a jealous God. God demands from you and I for there to be a a singularity to our affections. And God doesn't want our devotion out of some megalomaniacal need to be worshiped. He wants it because he knows that when we look to idols to satisfy us, to protect us, to fulfill us, to give us identity and meaning and purpose, we will be left calling out to them. And like the gods of Baal, these prayers will fall on deaf ears. This is exactly how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 135. He says, Of idols, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in him. But but then we read in places like Jeremiah 17, it says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. God wants all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength. He will not settle for second best. And whether we want to admit it tonight or not, that is the most loving thing he can do for us because he alone can satisfy. Amen? I want to invite you to stand with me. How long will you waver, VC20? I don't intend to be heavy-handed here, but how long will you waver? How long will you waver between fidelity to Jesus and the opinions of your friends? How long will you waver between faithfulness to Christ and, and a sense of being accepted? How long will you waver between pursuing the cause of the kingdom and pursuing your own successes and ambitions? How long will we waver? Here's the beautiful truth tonight. That even if you've been wavering for what feels like forever, even if tonight you're presently caught up in sin that you cannot shake, even if tonight you have felt uh, this sense of being wayward for, for some time now, all it takes is one turn to Christ. All it takes is for you to carry the water tonight and to pour it on the altar. God is faithful to answer that prayer every single time, I promise you. Uh, let's put our hands out in front of us just like this as a way to receive from the Lord tonight. This is just something we do here at VC20. These aren't Holy Spirit antennas or anything. This is just a way to empty ourselves out. This is a posture of surrender right here. This is saying, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. It's simply to the cross I cling. Jesus, make our lives all about you. You demand from us all of our worship. Because when we worship you, we become like you. When we worship you, we experience 
eternal joy that is only found in your presence. When we worship you, we're named by you. We find our identity in you. When we worship you, our fears are are stripped from us. When we worship you, our sin is cleansed from us. When we worship you, we're made whole. We're made new, Jesus. Father, forgive us for surrendering our worship to so many other things. Whether it's our, our social status or our careers or our relationships, our significant others, our college majors or whatever it is, God. We want to carry the water back to the altar tonight. We may not have much left in the reserves, God, but all that we have, we're bringing it back to you. Would you light us up, Lord, with the fire of your spirit? As you continue to seek the Lord in this posture of worship, I just want to read to you a poem. I wish I could lay hands and we could do prayer ministry like we typically do, but I'm just going to read to you this poem. This, this poem is written by a guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a, a Supreme Court justice back in the day. I'm not sure if this poem has a title, but just let these words wash over you as we begin to sing to the Lord together. It says, Lord of all being, throned afar, thy glory flames from sun and star, center and soul of every sphere, yet to each loving heart how near. Son of our life, thy quickening ray sheds on our path the glow of day, star of our hope, Thy softened light cheers the long watches of night. Our midnight is thy smile withdrawn. Our noontide is thy gracious dawn. Our rainbow arch, thy mercy sign. All save clouds of sin are thine. Lord of all life below and above, whose light is truth, whose warmth is love. Before thy ever blazing throne, We ask no luster of our own. Grant us thy truth and make us free in kindling hearts that burn for thee till all thy living altars claim. O holy light, one heavenly flame. Lord, Lord, claim the altars of our hearts tonight. May we burn only for you, Lord Jesus. Receive your worship and have your way in our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.